So I got to make fun of Father Anthony last week for his uh, early morning look, and now uh, this uh, this as he came into the the online studio here, he's like, "Bedhead Harrison." Because it's 7 a.m. when we're recording right now for me. Yes, I, I sang you a little good morning song because that that's what a good friend I am. Making fun of your bedhead and your robe and your sleepy your sleepy countenance. Hey, uh, but I, well, I've also been up for two hours already at this point. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, just got back yesterday morning from Saskatoon, Saskatchewan. Um, and, uh, it was a good week, actually. I mean, it was nice. I, I, I have to be more and more careful. I think about going away to, for my study weeks because my social side gets the best of me sometimes. Mm. Uh, but father Jeff was a great host. Uh, he, you know, gave a talk, um, gave a talk on Friday night at his parish. He's got a nice little parish there. It, it's not massive, but it's, uh, like the church is very full on Sunday morning, which is always a nice thing to see. And, uh, as we were getting ready for the procession, it's always funny when you're, when you're visiting priest somewhere, you always know to just be kind of sort of ready. Yes. Because literally <laughs> as the procession is about to start, he goes, Oh, Hey, do you want to preach? <laughs> I said, sure. Why not? Yeah. Uh, partially because he he bought a bunch of copies of Mysterion for his parish, to, and then he upsold them a little bit to as a small like just a little tiny fundraiser for his sanctuary renewal, which is gorgeous. It's mm-hmm. just oh my gosh! Did I send you a? Um, you did. It's very pretty. Yeah, it's it's very pretty. Um, but uh, yeah, it was a good time. Um, and got some studying done, which is good. So, but like, so for those who are not in academia oh and and, and shout out to, to also to father daryl and the cover makers and just lots of people there's a uh, when i gave my talk on friday night father jeff's like oh he's co-host of clerically speaking and there's a few woos in the crowd so definitely Yay. some litters in the parish actually Ooh. a lot of listeners there which is kind of cool so but uh yeah so i did some doctoral work and i've, I've got some i've got some uh um progress made which is good i did not get as much writing as i wanted done but i got a lot more clarity of how i want to move forward with all this which is good now but here's my beef you got a beef i've got a beef with supervisors oh supervisors okay yes i don't think they listen so (laughs) i doubt they do yeah (laughs) they probably don't even know this exists um but uh so after i submitted a very like super duper duper rough draft like not very well formed and and clear in some ways of a, of a chapter before Christmas. And a week later, one of the supervisors gets back to me, you know, very complimentary, actually. I mean, says, this is the stuff you need to work on. This is what I would suggest. And uh, I'm like, okay, great. The other guy didn't hear back from him. Still didn't hear back from him. It ended up being this past week, late in the week that I hear back from him finally. Mm-hmm. That was like f- almost four weeks. Now, I can't wait that long because the other guy is saying, well, actually, I mean, you've got enough structure here. You just need to, you just need to um, chisel it out more. That's it. So one guy, because the first guy is saying, hey, you might just want to simplify your structure. And, you know, I would suggest these three chapters, et cetera. The other guy is saying, well, actually, no, you're kind of on the right track. Just maybe chisel this out more. So I got essentially two different opinions. Mm-hmm. 
And I did a lot of work based on the first guy's suggestions because the second guy wasn't getting back to me. Because I don't have time to just like twiddle my thumbs and wait for them to get back. I don't know, you know, I'm just like, I'm just going to go for it. That's like really frustrating (laughs) because I was just like, I got to, we're having a meeting on Thursday, thankfully. And I'm just going to be saying like, this is what I'm doing. Um, and I just need you guys to support me in this because I can't do this back and forth anymore. Otherwise, I will. This thing will never, ever, 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 ever get done. I didn't realize. Do, do most people have more than one supervisor for their thesis? I thought it was only yeah. usually like one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you have two to three huh. usually. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah, usually you have two to three to make sure that you're being. It's it's it, this is and and it's funny because talking to friends who are also in doctoral programs, uh, the UK experience is very different, uh, mm. which is they expect you to kind of meet with them about once a month, uh, which is not the American, the American experience is like, maybe you're lucky to see the once a year, mm-hmm. maybe possibly, yeah. you know? So interesting. Um, but yeah, so that was like a little frustrating, but you know, one of the cool things was I actually kind of figured out my voice, like how I want to, write this thing in terms of form and I it actually I was like oh man why I wish I could figure this out like three years ago because uh, it's actually got really it's getting really easy to write which is good so nice and I just keep on realizing I'm like I'm not I'm not an idiot I know what I'm doing I actually mm-hmm. started reading a book on ADHD as well and uh, uh, just you know on the plane ride back and just trying to understand a little bit more I'm like okay now I know why I have this perfectionism because you you never feel like whatever you're writing is up to what you're th- with the up to the reality of the thoughts that are in your head. And so it's very hard to give expression to. Sure. Like, oh, okay. Now I understand that. So I just have to not kill that, but just recognize that that's at play when I'm doing these things. So that's more of a monologue than a dialogue. But uh, welcome to Clerically Speaking. I'm Father Harrison. Uh, Father Anthony. Big news from the producer household. Uh, producer Indiana has taken her first steps in step taking. Uh, has taken five whole steps as of uh, the morning of this recording. Very how big come, deal. How come nobody has sent me a video? Well, okay, so this happened spontaneously. Uh, Producer Indiana is not constantly being filmed, and I then find that hard to believe. Yeah, it's it's true though. And so actually, when when uh, Grandpa asked the same question that you did, Father Harrison, where's the proof? Um, uh, there's a little video of. Well, actually, let's just. Andy, can you walk to Mama? She just she just says no. Can you walk mama? No. <laughs> she was watching like a, a show and Riley turned yeah. it off and Indy just very upset by this and does not want to uh walk for the camera. So uh definitely uh a daughter of Nick. Yes, yes. She's uh to quote her mom, she is one going on thirteen. So <laughs> But the point is the point is that she has taken some steps. This is a big deal. And uh, congratulations to the whole producer family. I don't, unless I see it, I don't believe it. Okay. That's, um, I can't believe that you are that trusting of people. Oh, absolutely. I don't think. Nah, you're not, you're not trusting at all. I, I, you don't trust people. I don't trust a lot of people. Um, but that's just a weird thing for (laughs) Nick and Riley to make up on a Tuesday. Like, you don't need to do that. I don't, I don't get the payoff. It's not like they get like a reward for <laughs> her walking yet. So no, but yeah, I, I I just I don't know. I don't know. I just I distrust this. This is a really weird thing for you to to to, to I distrust. Think they, 
I think that they are uh, sad and disappointed that they're not the center of the podcast all the time, and so they're just uh, you know trying to make their way back. Oh, in. Oh, do you think this is a, this is purposefully for them to get a shout out on the podcast that they produce? I mean, yes, of course. That's interesting, considering that you know uh, producer Nick literally edits that podcast and could just pop in at any point in time if he wanted to. He probably won't because he'll edit this at like Thursday night at midnight before or, um, or Friday at like 4 p.m. Or Friday at 4 p.m. or something like that. It'll get out eventually. It'll get out eventually. Yeah. Currently speaking, it's yes. good enough. Yes. It's, it's, I don't know, but like January is like always this weird time of year where it's like there's nothing new really starting up in a parish. It's just kind of like you, it's you're terrible. Kind of, you're kind of over your Christmas lull a bit. And, and it's just life is just life. No, it's ter- January and February are the worst months ever. Never make any major life decisions in January or February. Especially February, yeah. I had a I had a nun say to me, uh, if you're gonna leave seminary, that's fine. Just don't make the decision in February. It's just it's just worse. Everything's bad and sad and terrible. And dark and boring and lame and stupid and dumb. That's what the take that February. Stupid. I mean, that's all I got. <laughs> okay. Um, let's do some uh, theological emergencies. Thank you for calling Clerically Speaking. If this is truly a theological emergency, please dial 1 at any time. Hi, I flushed my goldfish down the toilet, and I wanted to know, is that a sin? Theological emergency. We'll take your call at 412 412- Nine one two seven nine nine five. Hi, this is not Isaac from not Minnesota, obviously. So my question is, why do churches lock their doors during daylight hours? Also, why do churches lock their doors in general? Is it a fear-based thing or something else? I mean, what if a guy that's not named Isaac wants to come in and pray after work? Do you think that the motivation of locking doors outweighs the cost of the faithful coming in to pray? Thanks. First, I don't know. First, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> it's a way to answer a question. I, maybe I'm in a distrusting mood today, but it's people who are trying to undermine our bit. Are they undermining the bit or are they, are they um, uh, playing off the bit? Like... Um, Variations on a theme. Or have we gotten into their heads so much that they've lost all sense of self? It could be that. No, we could. I, I don't know my name. I don't know my place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they I don't are, know who they I am. Lost. I've lost all memory. I've lost all mm-hmm. identity. I think, uh, I mean, that's a that's quite the brain worm to happen, that, that this guy doesn't know what his name is or his place is. Yes, that's, that's a tough place to be in. It is a tough place to be in. Uh, so why do we lock the churches? Well, yes. I mean, why would the laity pray? Why would the laity pray? Um, well, no, like this is the, like, it's, it's like a rhetorical question. Because really, truly, we all know that only priests pray. And so we have to lock out the laity. And they are allowed in once in a blue moon to pray with us at Mass. And that's about it, right? Right, right, right. Because like we're, we live actually inside the church. Yeah. So that's why we lock the doors and we pray yeah. there all the time. Yeah, yeah. You, know, you just don't want people secret. busting into your house. Yeah, there's it's a secret bed, bed under the altar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. For naps. Uh, for naps, yes, with Jesus. Uh, so, no, seriously. So, um, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of reasons. I mean, one of them is simply 
can they actually yeah we have to we have we have a responsibility to also secure the place well for uh the, the parish that things don't get destroyed or stolen and so on and so forth like in my parish I have to lock the doors. The area we're in has a lot, can have some crime and stuff like that. It would be very easy uh, for someone to walk away with stuff if we just left it unlocked all the time. Um, so, but I mean, so in my parish, for example, we when the office is open, people can come pray in the church. And when it's not open, when the office is not open, then that's just it. Um, but my, my suggestion then would be, if you want to pray after work in the church, this is a good thing. Perhaps talk to your pastor and ask him, hey, could I, could, if we wanted to get a group of people to pray in the church after, you know, from like 5 to 6 p.m. once a week or something like that, could we have the church open to do that and see what he says? Uh, for some people, you also have to realize, like, um, I think, like, where, for example, my rectory is not on property. So the priest isn't also nearby to just check on things. Um, there's a lot of reasons and there, I think there actually are good reasons. Like it's not like, um, it's not like even in, like in Europe, for example, where churches can be unlocked, there is a different culture around an open church than there is here. And so I think the culture, the, the kind of general culture would have to change to such an extent that there's this kind of like societal agreement that people aren't going to go in and destroy things. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the sad thing and the ironic thing is that uh, churches are always unlocked for people named Isaac. So sadly, um, this gentleman who's not named Isaac is locked out of the churches. So that's that's just a bummer. Uh, if your name was Isaac, the church doors would open for you. But uh, it, it depends on really the parish and what's going on there. So um, at my parish, we have... Uh, maintenance guys on staff who will lock up the churches, you know, at night. We've got cameras installed and all that stuff. We've got various safety measures that allow us to have the church open during the day. It's still a bit of a risk, but it's a calculated risk because you know we've got uh, the, these other security features. Um, we will lock up the church during uh, when the when the uh, for example Martin Luther King Day was this past week. Uh, the church was locked during that day because. We don't want to have, uh, we want to give the staff people a day off so they don't have to come in and lock and open the churches and all that jazz. Um, but for the most part, our churches are open during the day. But I've been at other parishes where, yeah, it's just a, it's a safety thing. Um, and uh, there's not much yeah, else. I mean, not yeah. much. In some ways, there's not much else to it. It's, it's really that simple, you know, uh, or like, you know, at some places you have um, adoration chapels and there might be a code or a key card that you, uh, used to get in and get out and stuff and it's just it's just that's all it is it's just a practical thing um if a church can be open during the day i think we all agree that that's that's a nice thing to have yeah um uh, but if it can't it's just uh that's a bummer but yeah i wouldn't call it fear it. i wouldn't call it fear because it's it's it's, it's prudence it, it's prudence yeah. yeah yeah i think that's a better word it's about prudence i think some can maybe act out of fear but i would say sure for, most, for if you're if you're a good priest with a decent head on your shoulders generally if it's closed it's because of prudence yeah Hello, this is Anonymous again. If I were Producer Riley, I would call you guys bozos. But since I'm not Producer Riley and I don't have that relationship to you guys, I'm just going to explain that you did not answer the question I asked. You answered a different question about resurrection. My question is, if, if somebody dies in front of me, 
Should we as Catholics be praying for their immediate resurrection? I'm not asking about the end of time. That's not what the question was. Somebody dies in front of me. Should I pray for their resurrection? Or would that be not within Catholic teaching? Thank you so much. Have a great day. So apparently this caller, who is not producer Riley, um, had a question that we apparently did not answer to their satisfaction, uh, which I think the blame is most likely on the way the question was asked, because we yeah, answer I, all of our questions very thoroughly. Know, I mean, and, and I mean, we, we should get Nick to uh, replay the first. Uh, we should actually get Nick to play the first to pray to. Uh, sorry, we should get Nick to play the first one. Oh, your phone's ringing. It is ringing. One second. External. Who are you? External. This is Father Anthony. Three hours later. All right, tell us about it. That's good. You having fun? I was just doing like waiting music. Oh, that's great. We'll see what whatever Nick keeps of all that. <laughs> Probably nothing. Speaking of which, um, whether or not Nick wants to play the original question, uh, that's up to him. But it was question... on December 4th, I'm just saying. It was on December 4th, and I think he should replay it because uh, people need to hear. That we were correct? That we were correct because the original question was not clear enough about what they were, what they were asking. If there's one thing I like about podcasts, it's when uh, the producers and uh, talent of the podcast air their grievances on the air. On air. Yeah. It's just uh, it makes for a great time. Um, I mean, it's also it's it's just it's kind of like when you know a phone rings and you just kind of go off and deal with pastoral stuff for a couple minutes. You know, it's just it's all live. It's it's live. It's like it's 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 we are. We are seeing things in action. It's one of those things. Like when, I always felt like gypped back when people watch TV, when they said it's a live recording of something. It's like, well, that's not even live. Um, that's that's <laughs> a live recording. Exactly. Hello, this is Anonymous from An Anonymousville. Um, here's my question. Should we, as Catholics, be praying for the resurrection of the dead? in as much as somebody in my life passes away, should I be praying for their resurrection? What's the pastoral guidance there? Thanks. Bye. <laughs> All right. No, but I like this question a lot. I like this question a lot because this is a thing. And sometimes, uh, um, so the idea of praying for immediate uh, r resurrection. So if someone dies, you want to pray for their resurrection. Uh, sometimes people um, have this desire and you see this um, uh, sometimes even in other denominations, uh, people doing this sort of thing, because one of the miracles Jesus does is raise people from the dead. Uh, I think it's important to make a distinction between when Jesus is raising people from the dead and the resurrection. Um, the When Jesus raises up Lazarus from the dead or... Um, the uh, mother's son or he does this a few times it's not a resurrection so much as it is a resuscitation um they're coming back from the dead 
Yes. But it's just it's not the same as the resurrection because they do not have a glorified body. Right. All these people that he resurrected, <laughs> Lazarus, Lazarus had to die twice. Again. Yeah, exactly. Right? He knew um, he knew it was coming. This time, yes. This yes, time. which I can't imagine what that's like knowing that like dying once and knowing you have to die again. That's got to be crazy. Um but anyway, I don't think it's helpful or prudent or even a good idea to pray for for someone's uh resurrection after they have died um because we're all going to have to die you know right. um it's it's okay to pray for for healing um to you know because ultimately what we're trying to pray for is god's will to be done right so what you're saying is is not only was the first question uh unclear it mm. was imprecisely asked in terms of uh, the words that they used. Correct. Uh, but enough, enough of making fun of whoever this caller is. Uh, so there, there can be a tension in Christianity of, yeah. you know, people, am I not a- asking the big ask? I'm not, ask, yeah, am I not I asking for miracles because I don't believe they can happen. Right. Right. Um, and sometimes people feel guilty for not going all in with whatever they're asking God for. Yeah. Uh, it, Am I being confident enough in Christ to do right. all that I want? And exactly. uh, yeah, you have to be careful with that too, though, because then it, I mean, this is where discernment of spirits comes in and all this mm-hmm. stuff because yeah, it gets complicated in terms of, will the, then if I didn't get what I wanted, maybe my faith isn't good enough then what's the point and i'm done with this thing uh again like we have to see in this too though these these desires which i even say like it's a little like twisted and by this i don't mean like we're twisted and think we have to do this big ask but -hmm. rather i think like it's like it's a sign that something has maybe been lost around the miraculous and so forth in the church that is actually there but um, we have a tendency. I, I find more and more pastorally, like there, whatever is like a, often a, a weird reaction to something, a weird um, or a weird obsession about something is usually a sign. It's actually a sign that something true is actually missing, missing from Christian preaching, teaching in life. Hmm. And I would say like something. So like that, that desire of like, am I doing the big ask? I think is a sign of, are we, around miracles like is the church allowing this to have a real prominence in life like we have a tendency to play them down a lot more today Mm -hmm. right because we know that for most people this seems like superstition or magic Mm -hmm. right so i don't know and i don't know if that's good um but like i think and I, i think you're right though too around like this idea of like that big ask like would people have done that at least what we have like in terms of history and evidence it's not really common to do that big ask that it kind really of a big isn't. ask and why i think this is there's 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 two things here one is it ha- i'm certain it happens with some sort of saints i'm almost certain of it but i don't i can't think of any off the top of my head right now um it's just it, there tends to be that if jesus did it the saints did it and sometimes the saints did more new things that jesus didn't do um but I think if the saint does it, it's because a they're a saint. They are close enough with God to know God's will in the moment for this. That that God wants to perform a, a miraculous work for the sake of manifesting His glory for the salvation of souls. And 
I would say that a lot of times when people are asking for this, it's not around that. It's I want I don't want my loved one to leave me. Yeah. Right. Which is understandable. Right. But that's um, the other thing. But the second thing is, yeah. but and like this is why I think most of the church you wouldn't really see this in terms of a day to day thing is well, death is the path to life. So why are you why are you actually stopping the inevitable around their path to life? Um, death comes for all of us, and but it, for us it is not the it is actually not a bad thing. It's actually a good thing in terms of of um, our, you cannot have you cannot there cannot be Easter Sunday without Good Friday. Yeah, and if you look like yeah, we have our our books for prayers around death and burial and funerals. And there's a lot. There's prayers for someone who has just died. And the before they die, there's a bunch of prayers before they die. Right Terminal they illness, die. all that jazz. Yeah. Right. At the at the burial. Uh, uh, sorry. At the uh, at the um, at at the uh, funeral home before the the vigil prayers. At the vigil prayers, the mass, the burial. Like it's just right. We got all kinds of prayers, and in in all those prayers. N- None of them is an asking for the immediate revitalization of the person. Right. They're all praying for the ultimate resurrection, um, for um, the purification of this person. They're also very hopeful. That's one thing that, you know, yeah. since getting off on a slightly different topic really quickly, that um, there is, especially among, I think, our generation of, of priests and this idea that, like, we don't want to um, canonize those who have died right right uh we want to pray for the dead pray for their purification right which is good but at the same time i think sometimes that pendulum swings too far because the actual prayers of the liturgy they're very hopeful like the idea kind of is if you've been baptized the church kind of assumes that you've been following christ more or less and that there's great hope for your um eternal salvation that's how it's ordinarily supposed to happen so it's this balance between being like and I think legitimately yeah. hopeful without. Yeah. Well, that's why this is why um, in the preface, you know, it's that phrase, indeed, for your faithful Lord, life is changed, not Change. ended. But this is the thing. The key word is faithful. You're faithful. Right? <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, God is always faithful. But we uh, was it St. Paul, I think, probably, you know, when we are unfaithful, God remains faithful. Um, so there is this hopefulness. Um, but but at the same time, it's like, but there's a reason we're saying a mass for them. Right, because they are they need the redemption of Christ, and and there needs to be that openness to that redemption in them, etc. So you, it is like this. It's a weird balancing. Like for me, it's it's I, like when I preach a funeral, I have not a generic homily per se, but I have like I would say I have a, a theme I tend around a lot if I sure. don't know the person. Yeah, uh, which is a lot of the times when we're doing funerals. And I talk about grief at the beginning, a because again we're also not a culture that grieves. Let's do a celebration of life. No, no, no. We gotta, we gotta actually grieve. Mm-hmm. The celebration happens naturally, usually afterwards. You don't even need yeah. to call it that. Like it's just it's it's very put on. It's very manufactured. Yeah. And it's a an avoidance of grief. No, grief's a good thing. And and I think the reason, and I say this like I don't say this in a homily, but I just I often think about this is the avoidance of grief. Is as a twofold avoidance. One, it's it's an avoidance of the reality of death. That's an easy that's an easy one, right? But it's also an avoidance 
of the question death brings. Because if I'm grieving the loss of my mother or father or something like that, and I don't have faith, then there is no hope for that grief to be assuaged. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's like a way of gently provoking a reflection. Yeah. But then I bring it in like, well, why are we here today? We're, you know, it's, this is our last act of love is to pray that what Christ started in them in baptism might be fulfilled. So I'm like, I'm very careful. Mm -hmm. I talk about the good things of their life sometimes and everything, but I just, I, I I try to to thread that needle because we actually do need hope. Um, but we need it in such a way that it's not canonizing, but also not at the same time, hopeless. Um, and we need to be provoking the people who are there to actually ask the question of life. Yeah. Yeah. And not just hopeless, but I think we have to, I don't think it's a Christian attitude that when someone dies, we just throw up our hands and say, well, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where they're going. Like, right. that's not quite the right attitude. It's like, we have hope for them. That's right. why we're doing the mass. It's not like a, a huge ambiguity. It's like, well, you know, right. there's, you wouldn't be celebrating a mass for them if they didn't have hope. If there was no right. hope in that. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, okay. Man, we should do another podcast on funerals and stuff. Maybe I'll do it next week. Sounds good. All right. Uh, time for some some PE. PE? Yeah. Presbyteral exhortations. Oh. <laughs> And now it is time for Presbyteral Exhortations. Oh, yes. yes. Quite good. Quite good. Indubitably. Mm-hmm. Oh, I bet they can't wait to learn. They're going to learn so much. It's my favorite part. Oh, it's the best part. Yes. Yes. Quite. Yes. Right. So I want to talk about conscience today. Um, and, and I want to start off with a story I, I read by Eric Varden in Shattering, uh, the Shattering of Loneliness Uh book that he wrote which is really beautiful uh, it's a really beautiful book this man's he's a former trappist monk who's now the bishop of norway all of them. Uh-huh. yeah that's crazy to go from trappist to bishop it is but i mean hey that's the thing in the church make monks bishops especially that's true. um so in this book he he recounts the story of saint uh, mary of egypt now do you know anything about saint mary of egypt only that her name was Mary, and I guess she lived in Egypt. All right. So St. Mary of Egypt lived a very uh, licentious life from the age of 12 to 27. Mm. And uh, her whole life was around sexual sin and even trying to corrupt others, mm. uh, to bring others down, etc. I think it was around the age of 27 she encounters the there's a uh, there's a procession of the true cross or something like that going on and the crowds are going there and she wants to see it and she feels like this force say like pushing her back essentially saying like no you can't go hmm. in you can't go in and she tries and she tries and she can't go in and it becomes like this conversion moment for her really that she does eventually go in but it comes at a price of her renouncing all of her sin and all of her past and she goes off into the desert and lives a life of penance and asceticism for the rest of her life. I think she dies in her 50s or something like this. Um, very interesting story, like just around like 
how she would pray like when she and like by the way like i've been using this a lot in in confession lately because i think she's got a cool thing if if a temptation came her way she would prostrate herself Hmm. no matter where she was she just prostrate herself and she would lie there until until it kind of worked itself through Mm -hmm. there's something to that right you're you're submitting your body physically by by lying on the ground but also not running away from the temptation yeah she's allowing to fight it out with christ this whole i gotta avoid i gotta push that thought away nope sorry you actually have to fight it with christ that's the only way through the temptation it's just but anyways but like and that was the thing i was like struck by that i was really struck i'm like i don't seem to have that same horror towards sin and okay it there's uh hagiography there's maybe a lot um elaborations there's expansions maybe sometimes on the severity of their lives and their penance and stuff like this however i think there's something at the core there's a lesson there though Mm -hmm. her conscience was so alive and awake that the slightest thing that would that would take her off her course of seeking god she would do everything in her power to not allow it uh to gain victory over her And that's when I was struck by that. And I, I started praying with that because I was like, I don't have that. <laughs> I don't have that. And I don't know if that's a good thing. <laughs> well, it's not a good yeah. thing. It's not a good thing. There you go. It's yeah, not a good sure. thing. So then I started reading um, Balth- a companion of, of uh, Balthazar's writings on the spiritual exercise. So stuff he's written in all of his works around the spiritual exercises. And I started in the first week is on the week on hell. Mm-hmm. It's a great start. It actually is, actually. Start from the bottom. Now we're here. There is a reason why Balthazar starts there. Mm-hmm. Um, because I started to realize, like, and I put this in my own language because it's not that it's always about feeling, but, like, there's not this felt aversion to sin. It's not experience, maybe, is a better way to put it. Sure. Yeah, okay. But when you start to encounter the week of hell, you encounter the one who has gone ahead of you. Uh, who suffers everything and the only way you can actually be redeemed is when you go down there with him and offer everything that he has gone down there for you to do and thereby to be raised with him. Mm-hmm. And it was there that I was like, okay, something's... So it's it's not it's not a fixed thing yet. I brought this up to my spirit director. I'm like, I just, I'm recognizing something's off around conscience. Okay. In me, in me even. Yeah. Where I don't... Um, a thought or a temptation comes my way and I don't think anything of it that my con to me like oh wait maybe I think my conscience at least in certain parts of my life is completely dulled hmm I'm not saying like I'm doing like big bad stuff or anything right you know but that like we talk about in the tradition about this horror towards sin and stuff like this uh, so I'm going to stop there before I kind of get into what conscience is and stuff. I yeah, just, I think uh, you know I, I don't know. You have any thoughts? I, I do. A monologue there, but uh. I've got I've got a few thoughts. Um, first, with the story of uh, Saint Mary, um, I think you see because there can be um, you said a few things I think were important that fighting temptation is not a running away in the sense of uh, mm-hmm. how do I say this? Um, a lot of times when we try to push away a thought what we're actually 
doing is trying to resist temptation by our own strength. Right. So if I just, uh, you know, white knuckle it, if I just think hard enough, if I just um, uh, stare at the ground or, or something, then the temptation will go away. Um, but that only goes so far. Um, the real fighting of temptation is not to just run away from the sin, but to run towards Christ. And I think this is the thing that a lot of people miss, um, especially scrupulous people miss this. Yeah. Can, I, can, uh, I, can I add one quick thing there? Just to uh -huh. help break it open with what you're saying is uh, the analogy I often use is like, imagine you're, the enemy is like running towards the front lines. When you're running away from it, essentially you're running away. Well, the, the enemy is still going to be chasing you. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the problem is you're actually giving him better positioning to take yeah. you down. Mm -hmm. So you're better off to fight him when he comes your way, but to realize like the general's right behind your back to, yeah. to protect you and help you, right? So, yeah. No, no that's a good image. Um, but uh, to move towards Christ and not just away from sin, because this, is, this right. is a big error we make in the spiritual life that a lot of times, especially for the scrupulous, the entirety of the spiritual life revolves around sin. Yes. It's only about avoiding sin, right. which is while that's necessary, it's necessary for a reason which is you're going towards christ so when saint mary uh is prostrating herself or right. uh, doing these things to resist temptation the idea is not oh no i don't want to sin the idea is i would never want to do anything that would take me away from my beloved right that's a huge difference that's yeah exactly right yeah huge different motivator okay so there's that another thing is there is an interesting i, I think i've i've found um uh, an ebb of, and flow in in conscience that you can go from some people can go from this very kind of utter scrupulosity and in the process of being healed from their scrupulosity uh can sometimes um end up swinging a little bit the uh the other way Mm -hmm. um, and I, I struggle with this because I think sometimes I think part of this journey is necessary. Um, yeah, absolutely. Because because partially sometimes a scrupulous person is so afraid that if like they see their scrupulosity deep down as a good thing they should hold on to. Yes. Because it you know even though this is tormenting me, even though I do not live a life of freedom, even though I really don't live a life motivated by love, it is keeping me from sin. Yeah. And so they they still hold on to that as a good thing, um, but it's not. It's not at all. And you have to take the risk to live in freedom so that you can live a more authentically spiritual life, a life of love of Jesus Christ. Um, sometimes in that process, then um, we end up coming out on the other side where we do become a little bit numb to some of the usually, you know, lesser sins or we come, we almost become comfortable with our sins in a way that, yeah. um, it's almost like you are haunted by the fear of your past scrupulosity. I think a right. lot of people experience yeah, yeah, this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and you're yeah. so afraid of going back there that you would rather make peace with your sinfulness. Right. Um, and once again, it's the same error on the other way. Yeah. It's it, your moral life, your spiritual life becomes all about sin. Right. And not about Christ. So those are the thoughts that I think I, are pretty common for a lot of people. Yes. And you're kind of leading into what, like, it's also a misunderstanding of what conscience is. Mm hmm Right. Everything you're saying here, too, is just getting me to reflect a bit more, too, about, like, how we even see what morality is in North America. In North American culture, right? It's yeah. very rules-based. 
it's very rules based. Right. That's how we t- it's so funny hearing like <laughs> second graders confessions. It's all yeah. like what rules they broke. Right. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and, Which, and, I mean that's an okay place to start. Right. And it's not to say it's not to say it's not rules. Right. right. There are. This is the thing. Like the catechism is pretty clear about these things. There's a reason it structures it around the 10 commandments. Like there is a form to the content of the moral life. Um the problem is we we tend to I guess if you want to I'm going to do a little bit of a communal distinction here. The problem is in North America we focus on the form and not the content, the letter, not the spirit, and or we focus on quote unquote spirit, but to neglect the letter. Right? It's 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 these are not christologically rooted. It's both at the same time always, and so the moral life as it is to be seen, as you're saying, like it's am I am I am I turning towards Christ? And I think like. I'm glad you said that because I think that gives word to my discomfort in my own conscience. It was not about like, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worried enough about sin. Oh no, I'm not. Oh no, I should be more worried about sin. It was, do I love my beloved enough? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's where it was really was because like I saw in Saint Mary in that story, a deep love for Christ, that nothing would get in the way of that love, and that's the way she rooted it. And I think this is a good thing because, like, again, like you're saying, like there is. I think you're right. We have to kind of go through these things because we're historical beings. We need we 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 learn through practice and virtue and and pra- trying to practice virtue and to learn more about ourselves in the light of Christ. And this is where conscience comes in. And I think this actually gets to the whole notion of morality is just the the rules. That's how we treat conscience as well, except it. it Conscience is often seen as this is what I think is right and wrong, and suppose as far as it goes. Yes, yes, exactly. You know, if I think it's right, then I have to do the thing. Right, right. So, <laughs> or if I think it's wrong, then I will not do the thing. Hence, like you were saying, this this gets expressed, for example, in the non-scrupulous of well, I don't think anything's wrong, and I'm not. A, I'm just. I'm really a good person. I don't do anything bad. I am really a good person. Right. How and, often do I hear how good people are in the confessional? Gosh, it's amazing. Gosh, I always say, well, that's not why you're here. Um, <laughs> I'm very happy you're a good person. Now tell me your sins. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, you're only you're only a good person because you can recognize your sin. Uh, in that sense, right? That's what makes you a good person is to say I'm not yeah. good. Uh, mm-hmm. But because uh, that's the other thing, goodness is not just um, it's not just the avoidance of evil. Mm-hmm. Um, but then the opposite side of it all is the scrupulous person who makes up in their head all the rules that they have to follow with such a rigor yeah. that it loses the content of Christ in the for, in the form of it. And so it, it's this pendulum, but it's, it's this notion that I am the determiner of my conscience. So this is where I was like, I'm not feeling like I'm not feeling that. And it was like around this notion of Christ's love for me. And, and it was really was encountered like I've always found a special affinity in the exercises towards Christ crucified and Christ mm-hmm. in hell. Mm-hmm. Those are the places my heart tends towards partially because they're not hopeless for me. Um, and, and they're really quite powerful encounters because in that, in that experience of the senses, you're imagining and imagination for Ignatius is a very important thing. And again, that's a whole other thing. We've lost that, but that's maybe another day. Uh, like, you know, if Christ is crucified and you're there and you're there alone with him, like you ha- maybe there's a way that is visualized, for example, of you giving Christ your sins. 
And that starts, and this is the thing, because like I said earlier, okay, I, I, it's this lack of this felt reaction. And we say, well, it's all about feelings. Well, you're right, it's not, but also it doesn't neglect feelings. Right. And your feelings are kind of like the warning system, the pointing, they're like the sacrament of the soul, I guess you could say, right? Like in the sense that they make manifest the, 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 our spiritual state. They can, or they can at least, they can. So by this, I mean like that felt reaction of, I don't want to hurt my beloved or I'm, I'm dull to this temptation. Your feelings are telling you something about yeah. the state of your soul. So you're right. They're not the focus, but they're not to be neglected either. Ignatius yes. gets, the, Ignatius gets this. And like, that's mm-hmm. why like, I say, well, it's not about the, it's about the truth. I'm like, yes, it is about the truth. But the truth became man and man and man in his fullness, including affectivity. And we need to rediscover this affective side. This is why in the church you've lost, you have like reactions to these like very felt spiritualities, which go, which then neglect truth. Right. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. it's, it's very much a throwing out of a baby with the bathwater. Just yeah. because sometimes our feelings may deceive us doesn't mean that they are bad or just yeah. because we misinterpret them. Like, um, or even this idea that it's more, it's better to do something good while feeling bad that's actually not true like if you're a healthy person doing good should feel good those things should line up um loving christ should feel like loving christ there are times where you you have to like endure right sacrifice discipline but to throw out affectivity is is yeah right but again even in those moments where it's a non-felt thing well it's a non-felt thing because of the consequence of your sin yeah Mm -hmm. that's true it's it's a sign that you're your humanity is not properly integrated in your spiritual life yet, and that there's need a, there's a need of transformation and grace in there. Mm-hmm. So yes, like the, so like we talk about quote unquote the dark night or whatever, the purifying night in John of the Cross. Yeah, it is actually something felt. It's very it's, much it's, so, but it's like a numbness because that's the consequence of sin, right? And there's parts of us that are attached to that, and God's trying to say like, I want you to know in a deeper way what the consequence of sin is. So this, and so then, but then like, this is the thing we don't, we don't like, I think the reason I want to talk about this, we don't allow our numbness towards sin to actually point out to the, the fact that we are, uh, we are not actually, we, we maybe have not allowed a place for Christ to transform us and that this is part of the conscience and that the conscience is actually, it's a way that the conscience to say, Hey, you got to pay attention to this. Um, so I'm going to read uh something because i'm not also yeah um there is subjectivity and there's objectivity in conscience right so conscience is not just well i think this is right or wrong yeah. but it's, an, it's actually first and foremost an openness to the truth of things like you hear this i don't know about you but like i hear this often in if you're doing um when people get into habitual sin mm-hmm. we'll just leave it at that level um <laughs> They'll tell you often how the first couple times there's like this felt resistance to it almost. But then it gets easier and easier to do and it's harder and harder to resist. Yes. Right? And then it's like, well, maybe it's not so bad. That can't happen, yeah. Okay, so that's the subjective side of things with that. The objective side is saying, well, no, that habitual sin is bad. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. And yes, you have lost certain freedom in that habitual sin by giving into it a lot. Yeah, but that that the objective side is not. It's actually meant to be a revelation to the subject to say, 
like this uh, yeah, truth should always purify and so the truth of if so first it needs memory what was that for why were you feeling that way around that sin in the first place and sin actually blinds you to that memory it because it creates a stronger memory of well you know the consequences aren't really that bad don't worry about it well, they are actually we just we get become blind to seeing them so the whole point of truth is actually to kind of break in and shed light on the conscience to say this is right this is wrong so okay so the church's teachings on like let's say i mean a habitual thief let's say someone who go that first time of taking ten dollars from their parents wallet there is a fear a horror and so on and so forth and even a, a deep sense of guilt you do it 20 times later and you start doing more etc well the, the the truth that shines in there is to say but this is wrong and if I refuse to open my conscience to that truth, then I've actually closed off my conscience. And so if I can't, if, if, if the truth is saying stealing's wrong and my conscience is saying, well, it's really not that bad, that's actually a sign that my conscience is ill-formed. And I think this is, we've, so we lose this objective side to conscience a lot. And we actually lose that subjective side of why is my experience saying this isn't that bad but the the truth says this is bad, and that should be the first stage of a of a reforming of conscience. It means there's actually not something wrong with the truth. There's something wrong with me. Yeah, and it's it's it, so that process even that you're laying out is very yeah. Ignatian in the certain sense that like all of you, what you feel, what you experience, all this is data in a certain sense. Like it's um, or even uh, there's a tendency to immediately judge how we feel so if i feel bad that's a bad feeling therefore i should not feel it right whereas for ignatius it's like you you feel bad all right it's time to investigate that right exactly 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 yep. there, there's not a fear around it it's like okay this is something don't judge it immediately let's figure out what's going on there um and it's a way in which um we stop being tossed about by the ways of our emotions and experiences and can actually achieve more freedom by examining them and more fully integrating them. And one of the ways that we do this is like you said, this process of conscience, uh, which I really like. So one day, one day it'll happen that I may not mention rats here on the podcast, but we're not there right now, but it is not this day. <laughs> it's not this day. I want to read a little bit here. Uh, because like yeah he talks about this whole thing like of memory too like uh and that's why like so what the teachings of the church on moral truths is is such that it's actually the memory of christ so like you were saying earlier this this unity between moral action and love of christ that a conscience really is meant to be formed around love of christ that that's the whole moral tradition of the church she has to express it in more particular ways sometimes because we need that clarity to say this is right this is wrong and we also recognize that there are subjective conditions that can limit the the moral impact of an act, et cetera, right? So it's not it's not, but we need that clarity. Like like when people come into confessions, you know, and they say, "Well, I did this, but you know, but my husband was being a real jerk that day. The kids were <laughs> screaming a lot, and you know, I couldn't help but yell at them." Like I'm not, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care, not because I don't care. Yeah, 
I don't care in this particular situation because here's to say I did this. Right. And that's like this. We've over we over psychologize the conscience and our moral, moral life so often today. Yeah. And that's not all our fault. Again, this is uh, this is the air we breathe today. But I yeah. want to read this bit from this is a little book. It's actually one of the coolest covers, I think, of rats. Uh, the it does look real school. It's uh, anyways. He's reading a little book. Being yeah. all German. So. Uh, and conscience is like an act, like so the con- about a particular situation. Really, this is like how it's supposed to be. So, but it has to be always open to the truth. So, he says whether something is recognized or not depends on the will, which can block the way to recognition or lead to it. So, it's a th- it's, so it's actually we think of conscience only as as knowing, or like as a sense, right? Um, it's also a ju- it's also a judging. It's an act. It's an act as well. Um, it is dependent, that is to say, on an already formed moral character, which can either continue to deform or be f- further purified. On this level, the level of judgment, conscience in its narrower sense, it can be said that even the erroneous conscience binds. This statement is con- completely intelligible from the rational tradition of scholasticism. No one may act against his convictions, as St. Paul had already said. But this fact that the conviction a person has to come has come to certainly binds in the moment of acting does not signify a canonization of subjectivity. It is never wrong to follow the convictions one has arrived at. In fact, one must do so. But it can very well be wrong to have come to such askew convictions in the first place <laughs> by having subtle. stifled the protest of the memory of our being. So, like when I was talking about that, that felt initial, like you stole that ten dollars for the first time, and you felt, you felt it. It was like a very uh, big. When you forget who, that, that is like the conscience acting in its like natural form. It's saying you're acting against being, and so he calls it like the anamnesis of being, remembering. What we are as creatures is a very platonic thing. Yeah. So he goes, the li- guilt lies then in a different place, actually much deeper. <laughs> it's actually a worse guilt, in other words. Yeah. Not in the present act, not in the present judgment of conscience, but in the neglect of my being that made me deaf to the internal promptings of truth. Mm-hmm. For this reason, criminals of conviction like Hitler and Stalin are guilty. Yeah. These cases, these crass examples should not serve to put us at ease, but should rouse us to take seriously the earnestness of the plea, free me from my unknown guilt. Psalm 19, verse 13. Uh, so this is, this is like, I guess that encapsulates everything I've been trying to talk about here, right? Because, yeah. okay, I'm act like, and I think we, we, we have, and I, there's another little aside to this. I'm not going to go into it today. But we, we, we lack an urgency in the moral life because we actually lack a real experienced sense of the presence of Christ. It's hard to love him when we don't know he's there with us. Yeah. Right? And that's not our fault per se. That's, again, that's the air we breathe. So how do we discover him in that air, if you will, right? That's a whole other thing. But um, so like there's, there's a lack of eschatology, in other words, in our notion of judgment and the moral life. But that's, yeah. Another day, another day. But in my experience in that prayer, hearing about St. Mary, reading a bit of Balthazar, helped me to see that 
again, nothing, it wasn't anything like big, but I recognized that that numbness I felt towards little temptations here and there of thoughts that I just didn't deal with properly or desires or anything like that. I didn't necessarily act on, but that are still like they're coming, whatever it might be on, you know, anger, frustration, gossip, whatever, all those things. We all have them. My lack of sense of urgency, as Ratzinger says, reflecting on that points me to see that there is a deeper guilt. Yeah. And that's, and that's not hopeless. You see, that's where the Balthazarian Mm -hmm. reflection on hell comes in. There is one who was made guilty for us, who wants to take it on, but to take it on, you have to say, I give up my erroneous and erroneously formed conscience and all the actions that come from it. And I want to bear the consequences for it. And, in, and as we grow in that, we find the one who says, okay, but I want to bear it with and for you instead. And that's where the hope comes in. So that it's not, it's not, it's not guilt unto judgment. It's actually guilt unto conversion. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it's, it's one of these things that like, <laughs> we're, because normally when we experience guilt, there's punishment without forgiveness, especially today. That's our culture. Right. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times that can even be our upbringing or whatever else. But whenever our guilt is revealed to us in Christ, it's, it's almost like the Lord saying, look what I can, what I'm going to free you from or right. how I'm going to heal you. There's always a hope. God would not show us the depths of our guilt if he could not heal us or right. save us. Exactly. Yeah. Otherwise that'd just be torture. Um, I, yeah. I mean, that's another sign of a, of a overly moralized culture in the bad yeah. sense, right? Yes. Where it's all about rules. Well, I broke the rules and, and like, and I mean, this gets to the whole thing. We have a very litigious society where the subtlest mm-hmm. of things can bring on the greatest of lawsuits yeah. or the greatest <laughs> of, can- of cancellation. Like politics, this little thing, yeah. well, this, this senator needs to resign or whatever. Like, I don't know, like whatever. It's like we have this, we have this hyper-moralism <laughs> yeah. to own the other, essentially. Yes. Not because we actually care about the truth, mm-hmm. but because mm-hmm. we care about power. Yeah. And so there's a real fear because we've been we're formed in that daily and that's not a wrong fear but the christian conscience is lived differently and then the other thing with that then is that it's not individualized it's in the memoria of the church in the memory of the church who's always encountering christ and thus i need others around me to help me to purify my conscience so that i can encounter a love that is not condemning but that is redeeming mm-hmm I yeah. think that's good. Yeah, I think that's good. Cool. <laughs> cool. All right. Do the script. Oh, yeah. Do the script legit. Hey, hey. Do the uh, script. I don't. I do don't. the script legit. That's hey. not. I'm hey. just going to do it normal. I don't know. Uh, hey, thanks for listening. Please leave a review on iTunes and tell your friends about the podcast. Have you done that lately? Have you left a review? Have you told a friend about the podcast? Even better, have you told an enemy? about your po- about our podcast because Jesus says we must love our enemies you can find me at Father Scrap on Mastodon I don't even know what that is uh, you can you find me at FR Harrison on Twitter and just quickly though yes is your conscience been properly purified here's the truth that you need to tell your enemies and your friends about the podcast I mean people listen we have a lot of people listen but still tell your friends and enemies why because it's the truth and the truth purifies and therefore if you're not feeling like you have to tell your friends and family about this that means that you need to go to confession 
Contact the podcast every two days at ClericalPod on Twitter. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, or email us at clericallyspeaking at gmail.com. Do you have a theological emergency? Call 412-912-7995. That's 412-912-7995. Peace. God bless.